good evening, my wonderful, wonderful geeky friends. How are you? Did you miss me? I was gone for a week. Didn't mean to be. And, uh, well, it's caused some complications because there's been a bunch of stuff going on. And, well, I'm behind. I'm really, really behind. Which, those of you who know me will know, well, yeah, and. But, I mean, really, in, 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 in radio show terms, really, really behind. I've got reviews of the last episodes, respectively, of Picard and... The Mandalorian, I've got news about the muskrat and his rocket. And all of that should have been in last week's show, which didn't happen because, ah, and so there may be, in fact, there will be at least this week, two completely different shows. There's going to be today's, which is going to drop today on the 4th of May. May the 4th be with you, by the way. Happy Star Wars Day to all of, all of you who celebrate. And um, the other one will drop probably Saturday. Uh, so, yes, I am rather in unpatriotically going to be um, gatecrushing the coronation celebrations. But, you know, available and listen again and on the podcast feed. So worry ye not, ye patriots, if you don't want to miss a second of a bloke getting a shiny hat. You don't need to because we'll be available not just as broadcast, but also in other formats too. Uh, and that show will cover the stuff that would have been in this week's show. Well, will be in this week's show, just on Saturday. You, you know what I mean. So a, a bonus amount of geeking this week. It's entirely possible there may be three different shows. It may be entirely possible that our Tuesday slot, which again, normally a repeat slot, um, will be original material too. Um, not promising that, but I'm just looking at how much stuff I've got to get through. And I actually do have some time available for recording. So, um, yeah, we'll see how that goes. For now, uh, I'm going to start with some very brief news. I'm going to spend some real time talking about SpaceX and the Starship and the Super Heavy and the launch in the show on Saturday. But I am just going to acknowledge they did get their Starship off the ground last a fortnight ago now. Uh, in the last episode of original material you got from Geeking, I said, you know, this is probably out of date by the time you're listening to this, but they're supposed to be launching the rocket today. And they actually did. And they launched it and it cleared the tower. And that, I have to tell you, with a, a machine as complex as this, the most powerful rocket that has ever been launched from this planet. That's an achievement. They got it off the pad and they didn't blow up the, the ship. Achievement. They didn't make orbit. They did get to second stage separation, but the second stage didn't separate. And they went into uh, what was clearly a terminal roll and then blew up, which happens. This is not necessarily the embarrassing failure that lots of people who don't like Elon Musk have made it out to be. I also don't like Elon Musk, but I am quite a big fan of his engineers and they did a sterling, sterling, sterling job. However, there is a lot to talk about, uh, particularly about the uncertain future now of SpaceX and their Starship program, at least, because of all the stuff that happened, which is pretty much entirely down to Elon Musk being incredibly stupid. And we'll talk about that. And, and I'll justify that statement in the next show. But for now, I think it's time. One last time to talk about Star Trek. 
Well, they've done it. They've rounded off, not just Picard Season 3, but I think really the whole Next Generation saga, perhaps. Although one holds out some hope. But certainly Picard's story, I think, is done now. This was Picard's last hurrah. And what a hurrah it was. If you are unclear about whether I think they stuck the landing or not, be in no doubt. They absolutely did. Oh my goodness, have you seen it? Because if you haven't, you need to go and watch not just episode 10 of Picard season 3, but rewatch the whole of season 3 in one block because it is just perfect Star Trek. As you listen to this, Star Trek Picard Episode 10, The Last Generation, has been online for a week. If you haven't seen it already, what are you doing? Seriously, what are you doing? Almost everyone's got an Amazon Prime subscription, and those of you who haven't have got a friend who does. So, again, I ask you, where have you been? Have you not been listening to me? Well, actually, no, most people don't. But hey, this time, just trust me, if you haven't seen it, go watch it. But if you haven't seen it, don't listen to the next 15 minutes or so of this show. Because I'm going to spoiler the ever-loving heck out of it. And you do not want to go to this show spoiled. You just don't. It has too much good stuff and too many awesome reveals for you to go in spoiled. So I'm going to blow the spoiler horn one last time on this series. And honestly, genuinely, if you haven't seen it, go and make a cup of tea for a minute, all right? Spoilers! Spoilers! So we left the crew, the bridge crew of the Starship Enterprise D, setting off from the Fleet Museum aboard the Enterprise to save the galaxy to save Starfleet. We know that somewhere Jack Crusher is being assimilated by the Borg and that he is going to be used to assimilate the whole of Starfleet. We know that this is happening. We have seen it happen. We have seen the younger members of the crew aboard the Titan become assimilated. We've seen the ships of Starfleet all stupidly put together in one place at the same time, all be assimilated into the collective. Everything looks bleak. Earth is surrounded and defenceless because the very organisation dedicated to the defence of planet Earth has turned against it, is now part of mankind's greatest enemy, the Borg. So that's the situation going in now. I was never under any illusions that the Borg were going to win. That is not how Star Trek works. But how Starfleet was going to win, how the crew of the Enterprise D was going to win, that I was not sure of. And I was expecting a few things. I thought we might see some noble sacrifices. I thought we might see the loss of some of our beloved Star Trek friends. I should have known better because that ain't how Star Trek works either. What we got was a massively enjoyable nostalgia fest, if you're me. But I think if you're not me, if you didn't grow up 
watching Star Trek The Next Generation, I think you still got a really solid finale to a really solid, enjoyable, well-written, well-performed, well-crafted science fiction show. Really, I don't and can't know this, but I'm pretty sure that if you went into Picard Season 3 having never watched any Star Trek before, you would still have found it enjoyable. I mean, yes, you would have missed quite a lot of the references. The significance of the appearance of some of the characters would have been completely wasted on you. But you would have had an enjoyable show to watch. And that's rare. That's rare. This is the least gatekeeping sequel kind of show I think I've seen in a good long time. And I would be really interested to know, actually, info at destinationvenus.co.uk, if this is you. I really would be interested to know and to hear from anyone who's in that kind of boat, who, who may have seen Discovery, who's seen a lot of New Trek, but, you know, for whom Star Trek The Next Generation from the 90s is as distant as Star Trek The Original Series was to me when I was growing up in the 1980s. And now I've just done the maths in my head. And in fact, Star Trek The Next Generation is more distant from now than Star Trek The Original Series was when I was watching it in the late 70s and early 80s. And now I feel both sad and old. But, you know, the question still stands. If you are new to Trek, how did Picard Season 3 sit with you? Was it as good as I think it was for people who don't have the nostalgia feels? As I say, I can't know. All I know is that I just watched some very old friends of mine save the galaxy one last time. And we're going to keep coming back to that because that was very much an, an, a theme throughout the show. That, yeah, this is this is the last ride. This is the last time we're doing this. And we may not come back. And that's OK. So anyway, what actually happened? Well, the Titan is under the command of assimilated Borg. There are only the older members of the crew, a few who survived, who can possibly take it back. Meanwhile, the Enterprise D is warping in to Earth space and looking for the source of the signal that is allowing the Borg Collective to control Starfleet. And they find it. They find that the signal is coming from Jupiter. So off they go to Jupiter. And there, hiding in the red spot, is the Borg cube. And they do some pseudo-scientific jiggery-pokery in the way that Star Wars... Star, Star Wars, good Lord, blasphemy. The way that Star Trek often does. And they locate the unique human brain pattern of Jack Crusher. And they also note there is very little other life aboard this cube. The Borg cube should be a hive teeming with Borg drones. And it is not. What is going on? Well, time to investigate. Time... For one last away team. Picard is very clear. He's going to get his son. Riker basically says, well, if you're going, I'm going. And again, even in the heart of this drama, the bants between Worf and Riker continues. Because Worf says, I too will join you and make it a threesome. To which Riker just, do you even hear yourself? And, you know, I loved the levity. I loved that. In spite of the fact that the stakes were very high and everything was being taken very seriously, there was still time for that because there was always time for that kind of nonsense in Star Trek. And I loved that it was there. Data also insists that he should go. But pretty much everyone insists that Data's knowledge and expertise and skills, which are unique to Data, 
are required on the bridge. And oh boy, are they going to be. Three intrepid, intrepid heroes head for the turbo lift. With Riker trying to reassure his wife, Deanna Troy, that, yeah, I'll be back. I'll see you in a bit. Um, something which Picard rather undermines. Because as they get to the turbo lift, he turns to the people remaining behind and says, it's been an honour serving with you. And then he gets in the lift. And clearly, Picard thinks he is not coming back. So they beam aboard and they, you know, initially have some issues. They, they notice, first of all, that there are Borg aboard here, but they're dead and being consumed, cannibalised. This is ew, gross, even by Borg standards. But it's also indicating that something is very, very badly wrong with the Borg, with the collective. But Beverly Crusher from the Enterprise informs Picard that she's located Jack and that she also knows, or they've also figured out, how to find out where within the Borg cube the signal is coming from so that it can be disabled. And so Picard says, gentlemen, this is time for a parting of the ways. I have finished my job as a captain. Now it's time for me to go and do my job as a father. So he goes off to find Jack and Riker and Worf are heading off to find where the source of the signal is, the Borg collective signal that is now controlling Starfleet. And again, it's very much, uh, I'm not expecting to see you two again, vibe from Picard. And, you know, Riker has something suitably sentimental to say. Worf simply says, there are two turns of phrase that no Klingon will ever admit to knowing. One is defeat, the other is farewell. And so off they go, their separate ways. And Picard finds himself actually very quickly in the Borg Queen's chamber. There is Jack, completely assimilated. And he enters into an ill-advised discussion, I would say, with the Borg Queen. She taunts him, he challenges her, and his impotent fury is tangible because there's nothing he can do about this. Jack is assimilated. And unless he wants to set himself free, he is not going to de-assimilate. Just pulling the plug would probably kill him. It would certainly destroy his mind, as the Borg Queen, rather gleefully, I think, points out. And she's insistent that Jack's now home. He's Borg. And so Jean-Luc Picard, Starfleet officer, does the thing he had sworn he would never, ever do. He plugs himself back into the collective to become once more Locutus of Borg. Meanwhile, Riker and Worf are looking for the source of the signal and they found a terminal which can give them that information. But clearly not all the Borg drones are dead because one is waking up and senses the intrusion. Cue a battle between Riker and Worf and two Borg drones. The Borg drones have blasters. Riker appears to be unarmed. I'm not quite sure how that happened. And Worf has his little mini bathleth that he carries on his back. Very cool bit of kit. I really like that bathleth, actually. Were it not for the fact that it's almost certainly illegal under UK knife laws, I'd love one of those. And so the fight continues, and Worf takes out one of the drones. One other is still attacking, and 
Wolf has taken about as much punishment as he can stand, and he and Riker are taking cover behind some conveniently placed bit of cover. And he Wolf hands Riker his backlife and says, the handle. And of course, inside the handle, there is a phaser, which Wolf is simply not using, but which Riker uses to full effect, taking out the drone. When questioned, Wolf simply points out that swords are more fun. And, you know, I can't really argue with that. And then Wolf and Riker locate the source of the signal and transmit that information back to the Enterprise. Mission accomplished, at least they're part of it. Cut to aboard the Enterprise, where some realisations are taking place. Geordi has some bad news. Yes, they have identified correctly the origin of the signal. And it is right in the heart of the Borg Cube. And there's no way they're going to be able to get in there to destroy it. And even if they do, destroying that thing destroys the whole of the cube. Hmm. Still, it doesn't matter because they can't get there, can they? But they must. They absolutely must. And Data says, Yagda. And Geordi says, under no circumstances. And remember, Geordi has been given command of the ship. Geordi has been given the bridge by Picard. So if Geordi says don't, they don't. Data simply says, trust me. And they do. And so Data flies them into the Borg cube. And this is brilliant because he's throwing the Enterprise all over the place, which gives those members of the cast still aboard the Enterprise D the opportunity to recreate that thing that Star Trek has always done so well, to suggest that the ship is being thrown about by whatever forces, simply by having the actors on the stationary set throw themselves around a bit. It's always been hilarious, and my goodness, in particular, Marina Sirtis as Deanna Troy does not disappoint on this occasion. It was magnificently low-tech, and I adored it. Yes, yes, of course. Flying the Enterprise D through the Borg Cube to a big cavern at the centre of the Borg Cube is an awful lot like the flight of... Lando Calrissian and the other rebel fighters flying into the second Death Star in Return of the Jedi and everybody got the reference and nobody cares. It is, I think, only actually plagiarism if you're labouring under the misapprehension that no one's going to spot what you did. And I think they knew that everyone was going to spot what they did. I think you might even call it a deliberate tribute. But anyway, the Enterprise finds itself at the heart of the Borg cube and could right there and then just destroy the whole thing. But there's a problem. If they do that, then they destroy the Borg cube and everyone on it. And although they have transporter locks on Worf and Riker, they don't have a lock on Picard or Jack. So if they blow it, they're killing Jack and Picard. Everybody on the bridge looks to Beverly, who I suppose has the right to make that decision, but it's a lot, isn't it? But she understands the stakes. We lose Jack and Picard, or we lose not just humanity, but the galaxy. And the greater good of the greatest number and all of that. So she nods. And they're just about to beam Worf and Riker back aboard when Riker says, effectively, yeah, I'm not leaving him. And he heads off to go and get Picard. Worf follows and they both enter a part of the ship which conveniently the transporters can't reach. Meanwhile, Picard is inside the collective talking to Jack, who is happy there. Feels like he belongs. He feels 
accepted for the first time in his life. And he doesn't want to go with Picard. Picard is trying to talk him out of it. Meanwhile, Riker and Worf are heading for that location. Meanwhile, aboard the Enterprise, they are agonising. Do we shoot? Do we not shoot? How many of our friends are we prepared to kill to save the galaxy? Well, it turns out four, because they do, in fact, shoot. Meanwhile, Jack is coming out of it. He is voluntarily leaving the collective. He is convinced by the love of his father that, in fact, things can be better. And he doesn't need to be Borg to feel like he belongs. And as he comes round, as he, in his physical form, he's beginning to rip out the Borg wiring and stuff. And he pulls the, the jack plug thing out of the back of his father's neck. And they both de-assimilate just in time to die, really. Meanwhile, Worf and Riker arrive just in time to render assistance. But it's too late. The Enterprise doesn't can't lock on. Except, aboard the Enterprise, Beverly Crusher has an idea. And I've only watched this episode once, so I'm not entirely sure what she says. But I think it's something along the lines of, to heck with this. And she takes the Enterprise to the Borg Queen's throne chambery thing. So suddenly, the Enterprise appears above Worf and Riker and Picard and Jack. They're all beamed aboard and the Enterprise-D gets the heck out of Dodge as the Borg cube explodes around them. Again, somewhat reminiscent of Lando Calrissian's escape from the Death Star in Return of the Jedi. And just as the whole thing goes up in a huge conflagration, the Enterprise-D speeds out of the explosion and our heroes are safe-ish. Meanwhile, aboard the Titan, Seven and Raffi and a ragtag bundle of extraordinarily ill-suited people who happen to be old enough to not have been affected by the Borg's assimilation have to retaken the bridge with the cunning technique of connecting their phaser rifles to the transporter system so that when they shoot somebody, they don't kill them or stun them, they transport them to the transporter bay, which they have locked down. So now, the people who ran the bridge, the Borg, who were running the bridge, are trapped in the, in the transporter room trying to get out. And there's a very pleasing zombie movie feel going on just there. Obviously, they get out. Obviously, they are heading back to the bridge. And there's nothing that Seven or Rafi can do. They can see that the assimilated crew members are coming back up the turbo lift and that they're about to break into the bridge where they know they're just going to kill everybody and retake over the ship. And that's what happened. The Borg assimilated crew members burst out of the turbo lift, weapons raised, led by the woman who was once Sidney LaForge. And it looks as though we're going to have a fatal standoff. But just at that instant, that's when the Borg signal gets cut and everyone is de-assimilated. And yes, I have missed out some thrilling heroics played by the Titan using its cloaking device. Uh, but honestly, this show was not about them. So I, I just skipped it. Sorry. But the day is now saved. And everyone's victorious. And everyone's happy. And all that's left now is to wrap stuff up. The first thing we do is wrap up the Titan. We flash forward a little bit. 
We see Seven in what we assume to be a disciplinary interview with Admiral Tuvok, who points out that Seven absolutely disobeyed a direct order from her captain. And Seven just says, yeah, I know, I'll make this easy for you. I'm resigning. I'm leaving Starfleet. At that point, Tuvok plays a message that Captain Shaw had sent prior to all of this happening, in which he says that Seven is brilliant, annoying, but brilliant, and he's recommending her promotion to captain. Tuvok denies Captain Seven of Nine's request to leave Starfleet. And then we are with Beverly and Jack and Jean-Luc, with Jack in a Starfleet ensign's uniform, because Jack has been accepted to Starfleet and been given his first post aboard a ship. A ship that Picard doesn't know the name of. And Jack says, yeah, you do. And they fly into the space dock and they see what Picard believes to be the Titan. He says, ah, it's of course the Titan. But it's not the Titan. As the shuttlecraft gains altitude relative to this ship, they see it's been renamed. It is the NCC-1701G, the new Starship Enterprise. Picard is moved to tears. Jack goes aboard and meets its captain, a certain Captain Seven of Nine, and First Officer, Raffaella. And it's all good. And there's some banter, and they head off. And they cunningly avoid having Captain Seven say whatever her catchphrase is clearly going to be in the show they make next. The Titan flies off, and we cut to a bar, ten forward, we're told that Guinan is giving them side-eye, but we don't actually see Guinan because clearly they can't afford Whoopi Goldberg for this. And it's just the last remaining crew of the Enterprise-D having a drink and then turning it into a few hands of poker. And as they play their hands of poker, the camera pulls away, the music plays, and our friends settle down to a comfortable retirement. And again, I'm tearing up just telling you this. It couldn't have been more perfect, except if you stuck around to the end of the credits, you see the Titan in orbit around a planet somewhere. And we see Jack Crusher coming face to face with Q, who says that, yes, I told Picard that humanity's trials are over, but yours, yours are just beginning. Fade to black. Clearly, there are plans for a new show featuring the new Enterprise with its new legacy crew and I couldn't be happier about that bring it on as for this I have never seen fan service done so well it gave me exactly not what I wanted but what it turns out I needed this was Star Trek done not just right this was Star Trek done perfectly so the crew of the Enterprise D will no longer go boldly but that final frontier still awaits us. And somebody will be going boldly where no one has gone before for a very long time.
I'm not going to lie. I'm still a little bit emotional about the finale of Picard. I really am. Uh, one point of reference. Uh, in my review, in my, my fairly wordy rundown of what happened in the final episode, I said that it was Beverly Crusher who navigated the Enterprise to pick up Picard and Worf and Riker and Jack. It wasn't. Of course it wasn't. It was Deanna Troy. Of course it was. Anyway, no more time to talk about that because it's time, again, one last time, for the Haunting Panpipes. So we come to the final episode of The Mandalorian and it's it's been a ride, folks. It's not been my favourite season of the show. I think of the three seasons currently available, it's the weakest. But I think also it actually does create some of the highest points, if that makes any sense at all. I think the weakest episode of The Mandalorian ever is in this season. But as I say, there are some real highlights, which... We might have time to go back over. But, for now, I think it's very important that we make the position very, very clear. If you have not seen the final episode of The Mandalorian Season 3, well, you've had a week. What have you been doing? But, if you haven't, and you want to see it unspoiled, now is the time to look away. Spoilers! Spoilers! That's it. The spoiler horn has sounded. From this point onwards, you have been warned. And we left our heroes, because there are many heroes now, in something of a pickle. There were some Mandalorians on orbit. There were some Mandalorians on Mandalore itself. They had found the Great Forge, but worse than that, they had found a base. Specifically, Moff Gideon's base. And they had had their backsides handed to them by not just Moff Gideon, but by a cadre, a force, a squad of stormtroopers wearing something that looked very suspiciously like Mandalorian armour. Sort of a cross between the two. Gideon was very clear. He'd got the Beskar. His troops were Beskar armoured. And, well, it was looking bad. Look, the Mandalorians were fleeing. Din Djarin was captured. And... We were speculating that there may be a spy in their midst. One spy came, was already been identified, but the last episode was called The Spies. So we were looking for the other spies in the show. And we were speculating that maybe it was Axe Wolves, maybe it was the Armourer. Both had removed themselves from the field of combat. Both with ostensibly good reasons, but ooh, were they playing one side against the other? Well... Axe Wolves made it to the light cruiser that the Mandalorians had commandeered and ordered everyone off. Every Mandalorian aboard, he was ordering to the dropships so that they could go and reinforce Bo down on the surface. And this seemed like a strange order because he was questioned. Yeah, are you sure? And he said, yeah, absolutely sure. And, and so was that a hint at the start of this episode that Axe Wolves was the spy that actually might be a traitor? No sign at all of the armourer, so not quite sure what was going on there. Was she the traitor? Was she a spy? Spoilers! 
No, neither of them were. Actually, what happened was the armorer turned out to be amongst the Vandalorians heading down to help Bone. And Axe Wolves was using, as instructed, the light cruiser as a decoy to get the Thai bombers and the Thai, the Thai fighters off the backs of the Mandalorians. Meanwhile, on the surface, Bo and the rest of the Mandalorians, including the Mandalorians who'd always been on Mandalore, were exploring underground. And they come across a cave, a beautiful cave. And Bo kind of says, wow, you found gardens underground. To which one of the survival Mandalores, Mandal Mandalores, Mandalorians, replies, no, no, we, we built farms, we planted farms. And he is very clear that, you know, these are all indigenous plants to Mandalore. These are things that we were told could not grow here, and here they are. They can't survive on the surface, but we're growing them here. And it's proof that Mandalore is sustainable as a place to live. And I think that's why that sequence was there. And I think it's going to be significant in some other show, maybe another season of The Mandalorian, maybe in some other show. But I think the fact that the Mandalorians can live on Mandalore, I think, is going to be significant. And I think that's why that section was in there. But whilst all of the forces with Bo-Katan were kind of busy getting themselves sorted out and hanging around in caves, other Mandalorians were swooping down from the skies and Din Jaren was freeing himself from captivity by doing what he does best and fighting back. He got rid of his guards, and just as one of them looked like they got the drop on him, who should turn up but Grogu in the IT, is it IG-11, IG-12? I forget what the designation is. But turned up piloting his little robot suit, his big robot suit, and helped him out. And then, Din calls on R5-D4, who, and I'm not sure if this was made clear, R5-D4 definitely came off Mandalore when Din left last time, didn't he? Because I don't remember him being brought back. But he's there, on the surface, and Din calls on him to hack into the base's computer systems, which he does, and there are some real sort of R2-D2 on board the Death Star vibes here. But we'll come back to that, because swooping in from the clouds are all the Mandalorians that left Axe Wolves behind, jetpacking their way. They've dropped out the dropships, they're jetpacking their way to help Boca's hand. And we hear the voice of the armorer saying, Princess Kreese, here are your, your, your reinforcements. So the armorer is with the Mandalorians who dropshipped their way down from orbit. So, not the spy. She's here to help. And we get an absolutely epic flying Mandalorian battle as Moff Gideon's forces all jetpack their way towards the descending Mandalorians and the Mandalorians jetpack their way down and take on Moff Gideon's guys in the air. Now, this is impressive enough as Bo-Katan leads everybody from the front wielding the Darksaber and, you know, sort of hacking people to bits as she flies through them. The armorer does it with a pair of tongs and a, and a hammer. And it's not the first time we've seen her fight with this stuff. And it's bonkers. It's utterly, utterly, utterly ridiculous. There's no way this would work in practice. 
but it was hellish fun watching. Well, what a brilliantly nonsense thing to do. I really enjoyed it. You know, given that we have to suspend our disbelief as high as we do for The Mandalorian anyway, let's hang that disbelief up a little bit further and just enjoy somebody in a, a helmet and a fur stole beating seven bells out of people with a big hammer. It was joyous. Meanwhile, Din has found the entrance to Gideon's like inner sanctum, his inner lair. Guarded as it is, and we've seen this before, by several layers of force fields. Uh, each force field has a couple of guards behind it. It's very much like a boss level, or the beginning of a boss level on a computer game, which I'm betting is where they got the idea. And so Din called an R5-D4 to take down each set of shields in turn. And as each shield comes down, Din goes forwards, deals with the people, the guards, in that section. Then he has the next set of shields taken down, and so on. At no point does it occur to any of the guards to take down their own shields themselves so they can all pile on him at once, which is dumb. But they're stormtroopers, and stormtroopers are known for being dumber than rocks, so I guess we'll let that slide. But yeah, if you think about it, dumb. Meanwhile, Grogu is following on. And Din's kind of told him, look, you, you, you're you going to have to be really brave. We have to finish this now. We can't just run away. And so we end up with, ultimately, don't ask me how she gets there. She just does. I'm not going to recap the entire episode for you. We end up with what is basically a boss level fight. We have got Moff Gideon, Bo-Katan, Grogu, Din Djarin, and the three Praetorian guards about to engage in a fight. What we end up with is the three Praetorian guards taken on Grogu, who is initially inside the IG-11-12-13, again, I forget the designation, suit, but soon enough, free and out on, on his own, individually, doing his jumping and flipping that we've seen him do earlier in the, se in the season, uh, while Bo and Din take on Moff Gideon. And of course, Moff Gideon chooses this moment to explain his whole plan. We'd seen, as Din and Grogu sort of made their way towards this sort of command chamber of Gideon's, that there were tubes containing many clones of Moff Gideon, which were destroyed by Din. And Gideon is furious about this. He's basically saying, you've ruined, you've ruined everything. These clones were going to have the one thing I never had. They were going to have the Force. That's clearly what taking Grogu's blood had all been about. I don't know how that works. It's probably got something to do with Mythiclorians, which means I don't like it. But it doesn't matter, because they're all gone. And there's much fighting to be had. And honestly, Gideon appears to be taking control. Meanwhile, the Mandalorians, fighting together, are taking out the rest of Gideon's men. And Axe Wolves, up in orbit, is also proving that he too is probably not a spy. We're not sure at this point, but probably not, because he is about to crash the ship he's piloting, the light cruiser, into the planet. It's clearly a suicide run, which is clearly why he got rid of all the Mandalorians on board. He's only putting himself at risk. So now we're working towards a denouement, possibly even a climax. And it is quite spectacular, because what happens is Gideon, if it is Gideon, and we'll come to that, Gideon 
is getting the better of Bo and Din. He's really fighting his corner. Well, it's more of a platform, but you know, he is looking potentially like he might beat the two of them. And then he destroys the Darksaber. So suddenly, Bo's right to rule, her scepter of power, is gone. And then, then, in comes Axe Wolves and the Light Cruiser, screaming from the sky in a blaze of glory and fire. Axe Wolves, because he's not an idiot, has a jetpack, and jetpacks his way out of the cruiser just before impact. And so it crashes directly into the base. There is fire. There is destruction. There are explosions. It's a fabulous special effect. And the fire consumes Gideon. But not Bo or Din. Because there is Grogu using the force to shield them from the flames. And after that, really, it is all just wrapping up. We get a big scene with Bo-Katan being proclaimed the leader of Mandalore with loads of Mandalorians chanting, For Mandalore! It's quite cool, actually. And we get a ceremony in which Din asks that Grogu be upgraded from a foundling to an apprentice. And the armourer, in the way that she has when she says, you know how we can't do this, but we're going to find a way of doing it. She says, but he is not old enough to take the creed. He cannot speak the creed. Therefore, he cannot be an apprentice. And Din says, but surely if a parent were to give permission. To which the armourer fairly reasonably points out that, well, we don't know where his parents are. And even if they're alive, they're far away. So this can't be done. To which Din says that I will adopt him as my own. Which, to be frank, in all but legal terms, happened ages ago. They've been referring to Din as Grogu's dad since season two. But that happens, and so Grogu's upgraded from a foundling to an apprentice, and apparently that's important. And then the armourer gives Din the instruction that he must take Grogu and have adventures and do stuff so that Grogu can learn and be an apprentice. And apparently this is a thing for the Mandalorians. It's never been mentioned before, but it's a thing. And we'll accept it because Star Wars. And so, off Din goes with Grogu. But before heading back to Navarro, there's a brief stopover at the X-Wing fighter pilot bar, where he has a chat with our X-Wing pilot. Carson Teva, who he kind of strikes a deal with and he kind of says, look, I'm going to be available for hire and I know you want stuff dealing with out on the rim that your bosses want to ignore so maybe we can work something out maybe you can give me the odd mission maybe I can take out some bad guys for you unofficially on the down low, on the QT and Teva is like, yeah, okay we could probably make that work and just, just before they leave, Tiva says, you know, something about payment. And Din says, well, to start with, can I have that? And he points to an IG unit's head, stating that he wants it for parts. And then we're off back to Navarro, and there's much joyful celebration and reunion 
as Grief Carver makes good on his promise to give Mando a patch of land. And then we see what Din wanted the IG unit's head for. Because Intershot walks IG-12. Restored, fixed, fitted, voiced by Taika Waititi. And the new Marshal of Navarro. Which means Din doesn't have to do it. Because Din has a kid to raise and missions to do for the not new Republic. Not for them. No, definitely not. And then we cut to the final shot where we see Din sitting outside his little cabin on the porch like an old geezer looking out fondly at Grogu, who is levitating a frog. The camera zooms out and we end. And I have thoughts and have feelings because they could end it there. They absolutely could. That could be the very last episode of The Mandalorian. It's a it's a pleasing, satisfying resolution. Grogu has made his choice. He's no longer a Jedi. He's going to be a Mandalorian. I'm interested where they would go with that if they do more. And there is the possibility of a Mission of the Week style series featuring Din doing missions for not the New Republic. No, definitely not for them. That could work. It would be a very different show, but it would work. And I would watch it. And it would be cool. And cool is what we're very much after. Whether it would feature Pedro Pascal in any kind of way, I am not sure. I'm not even sure Pedro Pascal turned up on set at any point for season three. Din doesn't take his hat off at any point in season three. And seriously, why are you paying Pedro Pascal if you can't see his face? So my guess, and I don't think Lucasfilm will ever confirm this, but my guess would be that most of what you see on screen in season three is actually stunt guys in the suit with Pedro Pascal on voice work. And that would make sense because that's a lot cheaper than paying Pedro Pascal to actually turn up in person. And if you can't see his face, and I, I know there's a lot of acting you can do with a, an inclination of the head and all of that stuff, but come on. The, the role of Din doesn't require a huge amount of acting jobs. So actually, stunt guys are probably better suited to the role at this point because it's all physical. So, yeah, just pay Pedro Pascal to do your voice work and you're golden. I mean, you have to pay Amy Sackhoff to turn up because she keeps taking her hat off, but Den doesn't at all. So there's that. Uh, and I wonder if, you know, we'll get more Mandalorian in that line. It'd be much less expensive to do, I think. And, you know, money is a consideration at Disney these days, in spite of the fact they still appear to have all of it. I don't want to look too far to the future. I want to look back over this season because I think we've learned a few things, mostly about Grogu. We have learned how he escaped Order 66, that he was rescued. And I don't know about you guys, but I have noticed something which I think is quite profound. In seasons one and two, Grogu was, well, genuinely just a child. He was even credited as that. He was the child and he behaved as such. He was quite infantile. And quite egocentric in his desires. He wanted food, he ate it. Even if that involved committing a minor genocide when he ate all the frog's eggs. And he played like a child. And he still does. I mean, we see that with the levitating the frog at the end of this episode. But we're seeing personality coming through now. And lots of things linked together. And it actually all started in the book of Boba Fett in those 
in, in well in those two episodes, that one episode particularly, where Luke offers him the choice of the lightsaber or the Mandalorian chainmail. And Grogu chooses the chainmail, clearly, because he then pitches up back at um, Mos Eisley. And at the time, at the time, I was seeing that as a direct lift from Lone Wolf and Cub. I think I mentioned this in my review of that episode of Boba Fett. If you don't recall, Lone Wolf and Cub is a manga story. Well, at least I know it as a manga story. It, the, the folklore of it might be older than that. In which a ronin, a masterless samurai, travels Japan with his infant son in a stroller. And, you know, I mean, the, the visual echoes of Grogu in his little crib following on the, the, the Mandalorian, the, the visual echoes of that are very clear. And there's always been a lone wolf and cub vibe to the Mandalorian. And in Lone Wolf and Cub, in the very first origin kind of story, the Ronin has his child. His entire family has been murdered. His master has been murdered. And he needs to go essentially get revenge. And he offers his infant son, who's crawling and not yet talking, a choice between a dagger and a ball. And the idea is, if the infant son chooses the ball, then he is not able to go, he's not ready to go on this vengeance quest. And his father will then kill him and give him a merciful death. And, you know, the child will then join his mother in death and all that kind of stuff. There's lots of spiritual stuff to justify murdering a child in that. If he chooses the dagger, however, then he is choosing the way of the warrior. And he will go with his father on his quest. And that's clearly what happens. And I, I saw that lightsaber chainmail choice as a direct lift from that. And as a way of saying, right, Drogu's not going to be a Jedi. going to be a Mandalorian. Fine. However, in the light of some of the decisions and some of the actions that Grogu has taken this season, I think it's actually more profound than that. This season, we see Grogu given, briefly, an IG robot's body. Now, we know these are killing machines. At no point does Grogu kill anybody. He defends. He's a pacifier. We see him when the argument between the two Mandalorian factions begins to start, between Axe Wolves and the survival Mandalorian on their big sail ship. He uses his droid body to intervene and get in between the two of them and make peace. And that choice between the lightsaber and offensive weapon and the armor, something defensive, he chooses defense. And in the battle, the final battle, this episode, he moves always to protect, never to attack. And so we see something very profound about Grogu now. Grogu is all about protection and defence. He doesn't attack people. Not ever. Not even when they're bad. And I'd like to explore that further. So I hope there's a Mandalorian season four. I really, really do. I think there are all kinds of things we can explore with what's going on in Mandalore, with what's going on with the, the, the Armourer, with the various factions of Mandalorian now united, but for how long? How's that all going to work out? It's fascinating. And I'd also like to know more because hang on a cotton picking minute. Where were the Mandalorians in the sequel trilogy? If all of this is going on, 
What happened to them? And why didn't they come to the aid of the New Republic or the resistance? Because I think what we've got with Din starting to take missions without the New Republic's knowledge from Captain Teva, well, could that be the start of the resistance? Clearly, Gideon's mob, including General Hooks's dad, they're, the, they're the, 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 the beginnings of the First Order. Clearly, they're the beginnings of the First Order. We have Thrawn coming back. Clearly, the beginnings of the, th of the First Order. So, is Din and Captain Teva, is that the start of the Resistance? I, I wonder. And I'd like to see that develop more. I think there's lots we can do. It's all very exciting, and I'm kind of here for it. But, for now, uh, I have been talking for nearly half an hour about the Mandalorian. So, we'll, we'll knock it on the head. Just there. And so, and for the last time, we will hear the haunting panpipes. And consider season three of The Mandalorian having drawn to a very satisfactory conclusion. This is the way. And so we move on. We don't have a lot of time left, but we do have time for a quick look at the geek community. Notice board, what is going on in the world of geek? Well, I do have something really, really important to flag up to you. As some of you may know, our shop that is, you know, the thing behind this show, Destination Venus, hides underneath the stairs at Harrogate's Everyman Cinema. And... We don't talk very much about our gracious hosts at The Everyman, and we really, really should. Um, again, full disclosure, this is not a paid plug. They, they're not paying me for this, but I do live under their stairs. So, you know, I clearly have a relationship with The Everyman. Uh, and they're great people. It's a great cinema. I really, really love it. And one of the things they do, apart from showing all of the great films that you can expect to find at any cinema, they also show theatre. And they've done some amazing stuff, which I've never mentioned because it wasn't geeky. But now they're doing a geeky one. Yes. Set your diaries, ladies and gentlemen. Thursday, 25th of May. That's in a couple of weeks time. The Harrogate Theatre will be showing a production of Fanboy. And it strikes me as the perfect theatre production for the likes of us. Okay. It's about Joe. Joe has always been a nerd. In his teens, he hid it. I'll forgive him for that. I didn't, and I have the bruises to prove it. But nevertheless, in his 20s, he owned it, like so many of us do. Now in his 30s, Joe is still obsessed with Nintendos, Star Wars, and the Muppet Christmas Carol. Of course he is. He's only in his 30s. I'm 52. I'm still obsessed with those things. Anyway, he started to sense something. A great disturbance in the fandom. Alone, sorting through his old things, Joe finds an old videotape in an old VCR, long forgotten. And young people, you may need to look up what a VHS tape is. Um, Google is your friend in this respect. Now go away and stop making me feel old. Joe presses play and something amazing starts to happen. 
This show, Fanboy, is a love-hate letter to pop culture and to nostalgia. Award-winning writer and performer, Joe Salmon Lever, uh, who's done a bunch of theatre stuff which I've never heard of and you probably haven't either, explores our relationship to our past and future selves and asks why his generation is so obsessed with his childhood. And I'm just going to have to say, if we're talking 30-somethings, they're millennials. It ain't just the millennials who refuse to grow up, guys. I am very firmly Gen X, and we won't grow up either. So, yeah. Um, it is a hugely, hugely highly rated show. Um, it's got five stars from Starburst. It's got uh, four stars from The Scotsman, which I'm guessing is a four-star review in The Scotsman for its Edinburgh show. Uh, and a four-star review in The Scotsman is the biz. So this is a hugely successful, hugely popular show. You have a chance to come and see it here in Harrogate. Why would you miss that? So get your tickets now. Uh, you can get them online at the Everyman Cinema. If you just Google Everyman Cinema Harrogate, that will take you where you need to be. Or you could actually drop in to the Everyman in person. And you could go up the stairs and purchase your ticket from the bar actually in person. Maybe have a drink, maybe a piece of cake while you're there. Wonderful bar and coffee shop on the top of the Everyman. And of course, then you could come down the stairs or possibly use the lift and see me. If you're there on a Wednesday, Thursday, Friday or Saturday afternoon, you could come and have a look around Desties too. And yeah, that is a shameless plug. And I'm not sorry. Also, of course, all the usual stuff going on. Um, we missed a geek movie quiz while we were away, uh, but... They are back this month uh, at Major Tom's and at the Everyman Cinema. You can check out dates and stuff for them on the Geek Pub Quiz web uh, social media platforms. And you can check out what our friends at the Geek Retreat in Harrogate on Oxford Street are doing. Again, their events program is now so extensive, I couldn't possibly do it justice by talking about it here. So I'm not even going to try. Go and check out their social medias they're on facebook they're on instagram there's so much going on it's just a brilliant place to go and check out and they're wonderful people too and again they're not paying me to say that i just like them so that is it for the geek community notice board and that is pretty much it for this show but remember that is not it for this week we will be back on saturday that's saturday with a whole new episode Starting at 1pm, it's usual Saturday slot, but with new material, which is unusual. And just as another quick note, 1pm on Saturday is when Desties will be opening as well. We're opening a couple of hours late uh, this weekend. Uh, but that is it. We're out of time. So we'll see you on Saturday. Until we do, be kind to yourself. Be kind to everybody else. If you are having fun times for the coronation this weekend, do enjoy them. If you're not, come and see us at Desties. We're open all afternoon. Uh, and of course, we'll see you here on Saturday at 1pm.